listening to this week's message from Freedom Church. For more info on Freedom, visit freedomdl.com. Thanks for listening. Listen, we're in week two of a series called Little Things. And Little Things is all about helping direct your attention towards things that may seem insignificant and small to you, but that actually make a massive change in your life if you will actually jump into them and do them. You know, last week, um, what we talked about was changing how we refer to God and to Jesus. So when I was going through my orphan spirit process, one thing God showed me was, hey, I want you to stop calling me God and I want you to start calling me Father. And it coincided with my going from an orphan to a son. You see, when you're a son and a daughter, while he is God and we recognize his ruling and his creating, he is a father to us in that moment. Some of you long to have a relationship with God where you're a son or a daughter and you see him as a father. Well, guess what, guys? He wants that too. What about with Jesus going from from just Savior to Lord? These are small shifts, but... The purpose is to adjust your thought processes, uh, and, and God actually, you'll actually be able to see God in a different light, in a different way. It will change your processes on how you think about God. He isn't just the creator and the ruler. He's a father. At the core of who he is, he is a father. And Jesus just isn't savior and redeemer. Yes, he is those things, but he is Lord of everything. He is Lord. Now, this is huge for one major, major reason. If he is Lord of all, then it means that all are subject to his lordship. Now listen, people who are not Christians don't really like to hear this because they think that they're not subject to Jesus' lordship because they don't believe in Jesus. You are subject to gravity whether you believe in gravity or not. Do you hear what I'm saying? And you are subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ whether you like it or not. That means you. That means me. Listen to me. It also means the enemy. The enemy is subject to the lordship of Jesus as well. You need to hear that. Sometimes we put a little bit more, um, a little bit more power and authority on the enemy than he actually has. We put a little bit more emphasis on the devil than, he, than, than, he actually, than we actually should be doing. Um, here, the one who is leading the charge to tempt you and to ensnare you is still subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ as well. If you ever wondered how the world has gotten to be so evil. The answer is that Satan is the God and ruler of this world. Oh, wait a minute, God and ruler? What, what is going on here? You know, there are some um, organizations out there that actually teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They ascribe deity to Satan. Not biblical, okay? That is not a biblical truth. Satan is a created being. Jesus has been. He was before. He was then. He is now. He will ever be. Jesus and Satan are not brothers. Satan is not God, a part of his family. But he is the God of this world. Now, how do we parse that? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about this, because, I mean, what would Jesus do? Let's go back to what he said, Luke 4, 5, and 7. And the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, 
To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Satan offered Jesus the authority because he was given the authority over the world. Well, by who? The only one with the real authority, that's God. Now, wait a minute. That's jacking with our theology a little bit. But the Bible right here clearly says in this passage in Luke 4, for it has been delivered to me. Now, why would God give Satan authority? What? I mean, come on, man. Aren't you working for us up there? Like, what's going on? Okay, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Let's get to the sober truth. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What am I saying? I'm saying that even God plays by the rules. We chose Satan and his rule over God and his rule in that garden. That's why Satan has authority. But guess what? God has been working to restore us to himself ever since. You talk about wanting to know if God loves you or not. You mess it up, but he's fixing your mess up. I'm too filthy to come to Jesus. Great. He's got a good spot for filthy lambs. He says, you know what? Give me your unrighteousness. Give me your sin. Give me your mess. Give me your junk. Give me your bad attitude. Give me your broken thought processes. Come on, hear me. Give me the abuse that happened to you that's made you like you are. Give me the brokenness that is you. Give me the part of you that says, I don't know how to fix this. Give me all of that because I'm going to give you my righteousness. And I'm going to give you my joy. And I'm going to give you my peace. You think I'm angry at you? I've waited for this moment for eternity. For you just to come to me. Don't forget that the prodigal's father ran to meet him. Sometimes we think, well, I'm going to get back and just get whipped like a dog. The prodigal thought it too. And he says, I'm going to trade my sonship for servanthood because at least I'll get to be in my dad's house still. And the father ran out to greet him. Don't think for one second that God will do anything different with you, no matter what you've done. Well, I curse God. A lot of people have cursed God. But guess what? There's still room for you at his table. There's still room. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen. Deliver us from the evil one. Yes, Satan does have power and authority, but remember, even his power and authority are subject to Jesus' lordship. He has to answer to Jesus. The way he exercises power and authority, though, over us is through our sin. If he can ensnare us, he can get us to sin, which gives him authority in our lives. So let me just give you a little spiritual life hack today. If you are having trouble with a specific sin, with a specific temptation. Stop thinking about it in terms of right and wrong and start thinking about it in terms of a transaction. If I do this, what does it mean I transact in terms of my relationship with Jesus? It changes things. So how does Satan work to ensnare us? 
if we should pray to be delivered from the evil one, then how does he catch us to begin with? Well, 1 John 2, 15 through 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone, let me just stop right here for a second. Remember, at, at Freedom Church, we believe this, that God doesn't mind what you have. God is okay with you having a nice car, having a nice house. He's okay with you having a 401k and a pension and money in the bank. He's okay with all that stuff. He doesn't want those things to have you. So God's okay with you having things as long as those things don't have you. That's what he means here by don't love the things of the world. Don't love your pension more than you love your Jesus. Don't love your house or your car or your title more than you love your Jesus. Don't love your job more than you love Jesus. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, what your flesh wants, so we're talking here, what your flesh wants, that's your carnal desires. What your eyes see, that's your covetous desires. And pride idolatrous desires the word the word lust in this passage is a word that means focused passion so satan wants to control your focused passion so that you'll crave to please your flesh and yearn to have whatever you want and be so ambitious to be something that you make yourself a god why do I think Satan wants that? Well, number one, because First John says it. But number two, because that's exactly what he did. He, he covered the throne. In my book, Killing Orphan Spirit, I talk about how Satan, before the world was created, got a front row seat to a father loving his son and the son reciprocating that love to the father. He knows what's involved in that love. And he knows if you ever get a taste of that love, you'll forget Satan exists. Y'all hear what I'm saying? He saw all of that, yet he still wanted to be God. That's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And the reason there are always going to be things around you that trigger these things is because Satan wants you ensnared. Fellas, I know you may have had a problem with, you know, looking at stuff on the Internet or things like lust issues and stuff like that. Listen to me. There's always going to be a bikini. Ladies. I know something that speaks to you is being secure. There's always going to be a guy out there with more money than your man. Satan is always going to have a temptation in front of you. Why? Because he wants to destroy you. He's not going to say, well, they're going to the prayer march. I guess I'm done. I lost. I'm going to tell, he's going to give you every reason to not go walking around the city and praying. Well, it's hot. You know, it's, it's, I know it's October, but it's still going to be 100 degrees or I can't walk, you know, like go to the chiropractor and get ready. Anyway, <laughs> there's always going to be a temptation for carnal immorality. There's always going to be temptation for abject covetousness. Yeah. There's always going to be a temptation for selfish ambition. Satan doesn't destroy us by killing us, though. That's too easy. He destroys us by dirtying us. He makes us filthy through our sin. He doesn't need you to eat the whole garden. He just needs you to take a bite of the apple. That's all he needs. Well, we can't leave an open door for the day. He don't need an open door. He needs an unlocked one. That's what he needs. Just, just a little. And that's what he'll tell you. Just a little taste. It's not going to be that big a deal. Hey, God said he'll forgive you. 
if he can corrupt your motives, intents, and expectations, he has no need to eliminate you. You're already ensnared. So how can we stop that? I'd like to suggest three little things today that can help us overcome temptation in our lives and thwart the plan of the enemy. Three little things. The first one is motives. We need to check our motives. Before we dive into our motives, though, first, what are God's motives towards you? You know, we talked about last week how everything God does, he does from the heart of a father. Yes, he rules, but he rules out of fatherly love. Yes, he creates, but he creates out of a fatherly heart. Yes, he redeems and forgives and loves and and so many other things, even disciplines, but they are all done out of the heart of a father for you. And I don't know how that impacted you, but of the message last week, that was the thing that hit me the hardest. Because whenever I do something wrong, I automatically go into God as ruler and judge instead of God as father. But if I did something wrong in my own house and I told my parents about, they they might spank my rear end. Come on, somebody. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Bible doesn't say that, by the way. That's an old wives' tale. The Bible says spare the rod and you hate your son. Okay? So don't be afraid to spank them. All right? Some of y'all, some of y'all need to spank them right now. I'm kidding. I might get a spanking, but I was for sure going to get love. Because my parents understood that it isn't the spanking that makes me change. It's the love. And it's amazing how that lines up with what the Lord tells us. If you love me, you'll keep my, my commandments. We don't keep the commandments to prove to God we love him. We keep the commandments because we love him. God Almighty could squash me to smithereens for my sin. Probably some stuff I did this week. I mean, you're the preacher. You're not supposed to sin. (laughs) Okay. If you cut me, do not bleed. Back to Shakespeare. I'm a a human, man. I I have bad thought processes sometimes. I want to act out in my flesh sometimes. And I'm trying to reduce the amount of flesh, thinking maybe that will help the... By the way, it's a really good, really good excuse for dieting. I'm trying to get no, I'm not. This isn't for my health. I want to get closer to Jesus. Less flesh, less temptation. Okay. Anyway, he could squash me to smithereens, but the flow of his heart is not sourced from vengeance or justice. The stream from his heart is not getting you. When God looks at me, even in my sin, he sees a son. And the response he has towards me, while it might involve discipline, is always sourced from the fatherly love that he has for me. So what are God's motives concerning me? Well, let's start with the official verse of graduation. Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to read, oh, the places you'll go right after this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. I tell people this all the time. What does it say that God, before he ever said, let there be light, he already had a plan for you? You want to talk about somebody proving their love? Man, Jesus getting on a cross, that's a pretty big one. That's hard to beat that one. But maybe a second would be the fact that God already had your your days numbered and a plan for your life. And even... 
even ready for mitigation should you fail to choose the plan that he had for you. He had, a, he had an alternate route already planned for when you did the thing he knew you were going to do. Before he said, let there be light, he had all that worked out. Oh God, I just don't know what to do. Guess what he does? He's known for a long time. He's known for so long, it's a number you can't even count to, even if you pull your shoes off. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I tell people this bef- I've told people this before. I want you to close your eyes for a second and imagine what your best life would look like. Like what is the absolute best that you could imagine? Mm, got about $100 million in the bank, you know. <laughs> better have the same spouse. I'm just telling you all right now. You better have the same spouse, all right, because like, that might get you in trouble at lunchtime. But listen to me, God has a better plan than that for you. Jeremiah 3.19, we read this Jeremiah 3 passage last week, but it says, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. Man, I look at that verse and something just hits me. Sonship, a pleasant land. But God wants to give you a heritage. Some of y'all haven't had good family heritage. You've had a family heritage to the point where it follows your name even. I want you to know something, that if you will completely and totally embrace Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and give yourself to him, the heritage that followed you into the door will not leave with you. But as God will give you a white stone with a new name like we talked last week, God will give you a new heritage that follows his name. And his family. You don't have to be an alcoholic anymore. You don't have to be an anger junkie anymore. Just because your daddy and your pappy were. New family heritage. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish. But that all should reach repentance. Well I just don't know if Jesus wants me back. Bet. As the kids say. I know some of you are like, hey, you use that out of context. Whatever, I'm 43 years old. Get over it. Okay, so what is God's motive towards you? It's simple. Restored to sonship or daughterhood. You. You at your best. You free from sin. You and the family. Now, I don't want to be negative Nancy here, but what are your motives towards him? Our motives towards him are a reflection of how We perceive his motives towards us. And that's why it's so important to see his motives towards us. When you don't know him or you refuse to engage with him, it's too easy for the enemy to impact your own motives. All he needs you to do is to doubt his motives. So, again, what are your motives towards God? If Satan can get you to question God's motives, he can corrupt your motives. That's why Satan whispered into Eve's ear. He he was too wise to challenge God's authority directly. So he whispered into the ear of Eve to challenge her belief in God's motives towards her. Look at what Genesis 3, 4-5 says. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was Satan saying in her ear in that moment? It's simple. God is hiding something from you. 
And if somebody's hiding something from you, what does that mean? That means their motive towards you are not good. Satan used a tree with Adam and Eve. He may have used a terrible father figure or authority figure with you. He may have made you question why God didn't heal that person or why that person died. He may have challenged God's very existence just because you can't really hear Him clearly whenever you pray. Satan is trying to get you to doubt God's motives. It's a different scenario, but it's the same old trick. If he can get you to question God's motives, he can corrupt yours. And he uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to skew your motives. That's what he does. You may even start to question the motives of the people around you. Let me give you an example. Maybe that's why you don't tithe. That preacher just wants you money. That's all them preachers want is your money. See, now you're questioning my motives. You know, I don't have it to give, dude. Well, now you're questioning God's motives when it comes to him being Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for you. Okay, I'll get off money. Let's try something else. How about asking for help? Other people just want to know my business. More motives being doubted is what that says. I don't need help. I can fix this. Okay, wait. Now you're just getting selfish. What? Selfishness is idolatry, believe it or not. Okay, selfishness is the action of a person who thinks they are God. Can you look at your last, you know, three, let's go three days. I'm not, I'm not even going to do a week. That might be too overwhelming. But in the last three days, how many times have you been selfish in the last three days? All right, we're moving on. <laughs> if your motive is to get what you want, how is that not selfishness, pride, and even idolatry? If Abraham had selfish motives Isaac would have never been laid on that altar if Moses would have had selfish motives he would have never gone back to Egypt the truth is that when we question God's motives we corrupt our motives and we we, when we corrupt our motives we go into self-preservation mode which makes us selfish prideful and idolatrous now don't look but Satan loves this for you he loves it It's what he wanted to do when he tempted uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Let's look at this. It's super important. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Some of y'all need to learn that passage right there. Get behind me, Satan, and say it all the time. For it is written, another one is the Lord rebuke you. Come on, that's better than I rebuke you, Satan. Let the Lord do the rebuking in your life. Amen. Get behind me, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Wow, that is a, that is a foreshadowing of the cross, isn't it? For it is written, He shall give the angel charge over you. Isn't that even what Jesus was tempted with while he was hanging on the cross? The Bible says that he could have commanded a legion of angels to come rescue him. So even on the cross, Satan was doing the same old mess he was doing in Luke chapter 4. 
But Jesus said, He shall give his angel charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It's been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now the devil, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan tried hard to get Jesus to question his father's motive and to get Jesus to change his motives. But Jesus persisted. He was strong. He fought back. But look at how he fought back. He didn't fight back with happy thoughts and blues clues. He, thought, he fought back with, his wor- with his, the word of the Lord and his father's own motives. You're hungry, so satisfy your flesh. Jesus, why wouldn't God provide for you? What my father says is food enough, bro. All right, he's for me. Uh, that's his motivation towards me. Okay, fine. Well, look at these kingdoms, Jesus. You're the son of God, but you, didn't, you don't even own these. Your dad didn't give them to you. He gave them to me, but I'll give them to you if you'll just worship me. What makes you think I would worship someone whose motives towards me is filthy, Jesus responds. You say your father loves you, but would he love you enough to save you if you threw yourself down from this pinnacle? Now, this one was a tough one because what Satan was doing in that moment was a low blow. He was quoting the scripture to Jesus. He was quoting God's promises to Jesus. Satan was using the word, but guess what? Jesus was the word. So what does that mean? Satan was trying to turn Jesus upon himself. Be careful you don't let Satan distort God's motives or your own motives Because questioning other people's motives is only a part of it. You can become so confused in these moments that you even question your own motives. And as a result, you get so lost in the noise that you give up. If that's you today, I'm begging you, don't give up. Don't give up. Know that what is behind God's motivation for you is his love. Even if your motives are corrupt, even if you're confused, even when you see yourself and you just think nobody could want me, when you see and embrace his motives from you, it changes your motives, even your motives towards yourself. And I think it's for one good reason, one main reason. It's hard to ignore someone whose motives for you are good, even when your motives are bad. Guys, grace and mercy do something to us. Powerful. Even last week, as I shared about, if you get pulled over and you should go to jail, but the cop says, I'm going to let you off on this one. That grace and mercy, you you go tell somebody about it. Y'all, that police just let me go. I mean, my goodness, you could get an extra chicken strip down at Chili's later on, and you're like, bless and highly favored. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Grace and mercy do something to us, but guess what? Love covers a multitude of sins. Come on, guys, you're loved. God's motivation towards you is his love for you. Not vengeance. Not if they get their mess together, I might throw them a bone. No, he loves you. Truth is, God's motives for us never change, even in our sinfulness. But if we're going to clean up our motives towards God, we have to be willing to overcome our flesh. Now listen, guys, overcoming the flesh is just as much about adjusting your motives as it is staying pure. So what little thing are we talking about here today? I believe the Lord wants us to evaluate our motives. But I think it first has to start with God's motives. Are you questioning God's motives? If so, why? Has he failed you? I'm not even going to defend him. I'm going to let God defend himself on that one, okay? That's between you and him. But I might follow up with another question. How are your motives towards him? Are your pure motives getting you to a deeper walk with God or not? 
Or are your corrupt motives driving the idea that God failed you? This brings up a question of intent. Um, If your motives aren't pure, then what's your intent? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. First, how does intent differ from motive? This is important for you to understand, okay? The difference between intention and motive. Intention refers to an individual's plan or decision to do something, while motive is typically used to refer to the underlying reason or driving force behind that decision or action. In other words, intention is the conscious decision to act, while motive is the intentional or subconscious reason for that action. We talked before extensively here at Freedom about thoughts, beliefs, and actions. What you think dictates what you believe, and what you believe dictates what you do. Now, motives are the belief part of this equation, and action is the intent part of this equation. Actions are also the only part of the equation that we all see. And because what you do is a reflection of what you are thinking, it's super easy for people to judge because what you do must be tied to who you are. Again, don't look now, but Satan loves this. He loves it. He loves the idea of us being known by what we do. Why? Because let's be honest, our our intents, our actions, often reflect an absence of righteousness, not an abundance of it. So, because that's a huge statement, let's take a moment and break it down on a micro level. A real life example. Let's say your spouse has a bad day at work. Okay, if you don't have a spouse, okay, find a friend. They get home, and rather than greeting you with a smile, they just say, hey, like they're mad at you. Do y'all know what your spouse's hey, I'm mad at you sounds like? Anybody? Come on. Woo. Now listen. Your motives are going to shine like a beacon in the night through your intents. Okay? Remember, intent is the act. It's your formulated plan to carry out your motive. So, the first thing you do is immediately realize they had a tough day. And rather than piling on the badness, you decide to serve them as best you can, to speak life over them, to wrap them in love, to create a peaceful environment so they can forget the day and get refocused. Or you choose violence. <laughs> Step one, you listen to the enemy's lie that they haven't really been paying you much attention lately, so they're probably fed up with you anyway. Step two, he lies more with, I told you you married the wrong person. Y'all better be careful on Facebook, y'all. Them little high school sweethearts ain't going to fix whatever problem you got. Step three, you think, I'm not going to let them walk all over me. You must be out of your mind. And step four, you respond, what the heck is your issue? Guys, if you want to get in a fight with your stay-at-home wife, Walk in and just say, what have you been doing all day? (laughs) I preach a funeral. Okay, so you say, yeah, so you say, you say, what the heck's your issue? Let me ask you a question. What was your motive here? What was your motive? Did you forget that while you are two people, you are one in spirit? Did you forget that what's happening with one is happening with the other? Did you forget that God intentionally put both of you together, even if you came together in sin, and that God's motive towards you has been your best interest? And who better but the person Satan wants you to fight to help you get over the oppression of the world trying to ruin your household? 
And did you forget that as a child of God, who you are is exponentially more important than what you do, but what you do is a reflection of who you are inside. So if you're going to change what you do, you have to allow God to change your motive, your belief, so that you can change your intent or your action. So I'm asking you again, what's your motive? You don't have to answer it. Your intent is screaming it. What should your intent be? What should your formulated plan to carry out your motives be? And as soon as I asked that question when I was writing this message this week, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I pulled up this passage, and I cried like a baby at my computer because this is what we should be doing. Isaiah 58, it starts off in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily your righteousness shall go before you the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say here I am if you take away the yoke from your midst the pointing of the finger the spreading wickedness if you put yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will continually guide you. He'll satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters don't fail and here it is church and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. That's what our motive should be and you know why? Because this is your daddy's motive towards you. That's God's motive towards you. So if this isn't your motive, then let me humbly and in love ask you, do you even know the Father? I'm not trying to insult. I'm really not. But Isaiah 58 is the Father's motive with us, repairing the breach, forgiveness, healing, wholeness, goodness. And i got to be honest with you guys, I got convicted when I was writing this because I realized that so many times my motives are selfish and evil and unholy and ungodly. They're so inwardly focused that sometimes I can't even recognize the ministry opportunity that's in my face. I don't got time for that. No, I don't have a dollar. You're probably going to spend it on cigarettes? No, how? Like, come on, man. What if that's an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? Do we forget that Jesus is coming back? Or have we just pretended that that's not, what, that's not going to happen? Look around, guys. What kind of world are we in right now? It's craziness. Isaiah 58 starts off with people being upset at God because he wouldn't accept their fasts. But God didn't accept them because their motive was wrong. Isaiah 58, 3 and 4. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. That's why God says, because your motives are off. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. He asks, is this really the fast you think I choose? Do you really think this is the right motive? Do you think this is my motive? What do you expect to come from this? Fellas, the next time your wife comes in and she's not had her best day, what's your motive in that moment? You going to be a helpmate or you going to be a hurtmate? Wives, the same thing. I'll never forget my mom saying something one day 
about the fact that, that you know, dad, he worked so hard as a welder for so long. And, and mom understood that every time she spent dollars, it represented sweat from his brow. Come on, that's a helpmate, man. And in, in, in light of that, y'all cut the lights off. Come on, man, the light bill's high. Sorry, that's a whole different animal that I'm having to deal with. What's your motive? When you see that coworker tomorrow that you don't like, what's your motive with them? Let me ask you a question. The people that you don't like, what happens if your mansion is right next to theirs? I said something to somebody this week. You really know you've forgiven somebody if you want to see them in heaven. It's hard. But it begs the question, what's your motive? And if your motive is not pure and holy and godly, then what do you expect is going to happen? And that's the last thing we're going to deal with quickly. It's expectations. What do you expect to come from questioning God's motives and allowing your own motives to be corrupted by sin? You know, Jesus taught his disciples at one point and he finished teaching his disciples and he went to Galilee. And then John the Baptist, who was in prison, sent followers to Jesus to ask, hey, are are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And Matthew 11 uh, picks that up in verse 4. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you've heard and seen. The blind can see. The cripple can walk. People with leprosy are healed. The deaf can hear. The dead are brought back to life. And the good news is being told to the poor. Great blessings belong to those who don't have a problem accepting me. And when John's followers left, Jesus began talking to the people about John he said what did you people go out to the desert to see someone who's weak like a stem of grass blowing in the wind really what did you expect to see someone dressed in fine clothes of course not people who wear fine clothes are all in king's palaces so what did you go out to see a prophet yes John is a prophet but I tell you he is more than that the scripture was written about him listen I will send my messenger ahead of you he will prepare the way for you the truth is that John the baptizer is greater than anyone who has ever come into this world but even the least important person in God's kingdom is greater than John since the time John the baptizer came until now God's kingdom has been growing strongly and people have been trying to take control of it by force but before John came the law of Moses and all the prophets told about the things that would happen and if you believe what they said then John is Elijah. He is the one they said would come. What is my point here? John knew who Jesus was because his intent matched his motive. His actions matched his belief. John wanted to know if Jesus was the one because John wanted nothing more than for his motives to match the one's motives. So when John heard Jesus' response, not only did John realize Jesus was the one, but he realized he'd accomplished his mission God sent him to do. His motivation for the entirety of his life was to prepare the way for the Lord. All of its intents were driven by that one motive, and that was birthed in the heart of of God the Father for John. He believed God's motives for his life, and his intents were simply evidence of John's godly motives. Hear what I'm saying. John fulfilled his purpose because his motives matched his father's. And he could only recognize Jesus because his motives matched the ones. Here's my question. What about you? Do you believe God's motives for you? Do your intents match your motives? Now look, I know this has been a tough message. It's a challenge, okay? But I really do want you to be encouraged. I... I, I want you to be encouraged today. I want you to leave going, okay, I'm feeling refreshed. But listen, I can't, I can't let you walk out of here with corruptive motives. 
So the little thing in this message that's going to make a huge impact is simply this. Check your motives. If your motives are corrupt, it's time to get them right again. With your spouse, check your motives. With your kids, check your motives. I get it. I have toddlers. I have not toddlers anymore, but I've got young kids, three kids under the age of 11. I get it. It's a lot. It's tough. They talk about the terrible twos. Have you seen the threes and the fours? Because them's the devils. Okay, like, I get it. I understand. But listen to me. Your children are a blessing and a heritage of the Lord. There are arrows in, in, in your bag over here. Like, come on, man. But we can so easily change our motives towards our kids and forget that we're, we are raising people to become followers of Jesus Christ who fulfill their own purpose. We're not living vicariously through our children. What about, what about with your friends and your extended family? I can't stand that mother-in-law. Uh, come on. What's your motive towards her? Have you ever thought that maybe people are acting out in negativity because they've been so hurt and nobody's given them a chance to heal? What if you were the one that was the repairer of the breach by giving them space to heal? We have some people in our church right now that are literally walking through that very thing I just said. What about with your job and your calling? I've been a pastor for 25 years now, and for the first 13 years, I was bivocational. And every day I'd go to work, and all I would think about is ministry. It's just like, oh, I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels until I get to church. Listen, sometimes you have to do what you have to do so you can get to do what you want to do. And I realize sometimes you have to work. You've got to make money. If a man don't work, he shouldn't eat, the Bible says. But just because you have a job doesn't mean you cannot satisfy a godly motive in your life to see the kingdom move. So maybe your view of your job should be, my job is a tool to help me do what God's called me to do. It's just a tool. Guess what, guys? Money is just a tool to help you do what God wants you to do. Check your motives with your Christianity, too. If your motives are what you're getting out of this Christian thing, check your motives. Because if there's one thing I can tell you that's true of Christianity, Christianity is not what you get out of it. It's what God can do through you to help the kingdom move. Let me tell you something. You know what feels better than receiving from God? Is being a conduit to give. Giving is better than receiving. Blessing someone is better than getting blessed. Being a part of healing in somebody else's life feels better than you being healed. You know why? It's because it means that God took your brokenness and made something beautiful out of it. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. Listen to me. When your motives are pure, your hearing is sharp. So let's have pure godly motives. Okay? If you do that, pure and godly intents will follow. Let's take a moment pray. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for today. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. God, we are blown away by you, by your love for us. Blown away by your kindness. Blown away at your motives towards us. 
Because the truth is, God, we don't deserve godly motives towards us. We don't deserve your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. We don't deserve restoration. But God, I'm so thankful that since you said, let there be light, you've been working on a plan to get me back home. And so God, here's what I'm asking in this moment for me and for this congregation. God, that you would help adjust our motives so they can match yours. We can pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But God, we want to pray that, that your will is done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. That our motives match your motives as, as on earth as it is in heaven. In my life as it is in heaven. In my family as it is in heaven. God, we're asking you to help us now. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do a work that only you can do. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to give you two responses. Correcting motives always starts with asking God for forgiveness and allowing, and for allowing your motives to be corrupted. So take a moment and get right with God. The second one is if you're really serious about this, I want you to talk to somebody in your family or talk to one of your friends today about how your motives have been skewed and how you're making a commitment to get them back in alignment. All this is just talk unless you do something about it. I challenge you to do something. Amen. Amen. At Freedom, we want to help you have authentic relationships with God and His people, to have real experiences with the Holy Spirit, and to find lasting freedom. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you through this message, or if you want to make a decision for Jesus, please reach out at freedomdl.com connect. For more info on Freedom, including service times and location, visit freedomdl.com. Thanks for listening.